Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. This week's episode, for many Australians, White Ribbon was synonymous with the movement to end domestic violence. For others, it was a symbol of ignoring the voices of victim survivors, tokenism and taking much needed money away from women's safety services. Now in a new chapter, under the custodianship of Communicare, White Ribbon Australia is taking a different approach, moving from awareness raising to advocacy and action, collaboration and amplifying other voices and organisations. New Executive Director Brad Chilcott founded and convened the Family and Domestic Violence Advocacy Network in South Australia, created the annual Adelaide White Ribbon March, is on the board of Reconciliation South Australia and was named in South Australia's 100 Most Influential People in 2018. He has also worked as the interim CEO of Australians for Mental Health, as an advisor to Tim Costello and the Campaign for Australian Aid, leading the Elite Influencer Strategy. In this week's episode, Brad will delve into his personal journey into becoming White Ribbon Australia's Executive Director and share some of the changes that he's focused on making in the broader movement to advance gender equality and end gendered violence. Brad, thanks so much for joining us uh, and great to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's a pleasure and we're sorry we couldn't get you to this conference in person, but uh, nonetheless, it'd still be great to have a conversation with you during such an important time of the year for an important topic. Yeah, very sad that I couldn't be on the Gold Coast with everyone, but, uh, you know, this year it is what it is. That's it. We'll roll with, uh, yeah, take what we can get. So, listen, Brad, you've been a, a, a person who's had an extensive amount of experience so far in your career and still going. But tell us, where did it start for you um, professionally? In regards to family and domestic violence? Or? No, just regard to your, your professional life because I know you've got a – you started with the Welcoming Australia um, side of things. Tell us, is that where it started for you to get into the – into um, you know the doing initiatives across Australia with the uh, um, doing the framework that you implemented with that. I mean, tell us is that where you started your career in in what you're doing now? Mm, I mean, it's, it is. It's a little hard to define where I started. I guess I, I was a volunteer youth worker in a, in my um, younger days, and uh, you know, I guess really exposed to um, the challenges that young people were facing that. Um, I guess at the time were really not familiar to me because of my my upbringing and and what I'd experienced in my life. Um, we were by by no means a, a wealthy family. My parent, my dad, has been a taxi driver his whole life, and my mum yeah. did some family daycare back then. But I guess um, you know being exposed to the way that I guess issues like family violence and addiction and um, and financial insecurity impacted on on other young people um, and then when I became yeah I guess like a, a youth worker seeing that played out in in self-harm and at suicide and um, and other uh, harmful behaviors that really set me on a journey of wanting to not have an, a uh, career that was about me and my wealth and um, ambition, but to explore how I could use whatever power and privilege I had to make a difference for others. 
So it's been a long journey since then, but um, incredible. yeah, welcoming Australia was was one of the, I guess, the first thing that was really on a national scale. And that's um, we're about to turn ten in in March next year, actually. So uh, that that was around in a, in a similar vein to what I mentioned about young people. It was seeing the experience of people seeking asylum, refugees, and, and other migrants trying to make a way for themselves, um, you know, find the the better life that they had come to Australia for in the midst of public leadership, our political leaders and our media narrative that basically said, we don't want you here over and over again. And no matter how many nice people they met on their journey, when you watch the news or open the newspaper and it makes it very clear that our, our leaders um, want to harm you and wish that you weren't here, it makes it really hard to belong and, and contribute and thrive in the way that they would have hoped to. So it's sort of something that you, you sort of it was inbuilt in you really. I mean, you started out volu- volunteering somewhat. Um, what what organisation was that with, with the uh, youth work? Oh, right, right at the beginning, I was a church um, youth oh, worker. Good on you. So um, it's been, I grew up in a really conservative fundamentalist uh, church. Yep. And, and I guess that's why some of the experiences that I had connecting with uh, young people outside of that environment were um, confronting because it was a very, you know, cloistered, um, uh, safe experience. And mm. um, so that started yeah, I guess changing my perspective on on a whole lot of things that I was brought up to believe and and to assume were true, including in relation to this work that I'm doing now. Um, you know, the assumption of male authority and male decision making and and prioritizing men um, theologically, but also you know socially and organizationally. So um, yeah, a lot of a lot of unlearning since those days. It certainly sounds like it, and uh, and a lot of learnings. I can see that you you've uh, had over your career, and no doubt you've had some challenges too. Tell us, as you've been, I guess since twenty eleven, when you founded Welcoming Australia, and you started getting into that inclusivity, diversity, that sort of stuff. Tell us, what have you seen as being some of the biggest challenges um, when trying to change a culture? I guess that's been instilled for so long. I, mean, I guess one of the challenges is how hard it is to measure when you have changed culture and the um, and the continual setbacks along the way. Like there's there's moments where you feel like well, I'll give you one example. We um, launched when Ma- Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister. We launched something called the National um, Day of Unity. And uh, we'd actually launched it the year before, but in the second year, Malcolm Turnbull was um, was prime minister, and and so we had an event at Parliament House where we had the prime minister, the opposition leader Bill Shorten, and the Greens leader at the time, Senator Richard Di Natale, do a joint media conference, um, which was apparently the first in thirteen years. We were told um, at the time to basically say, "Let's not be." Um, let's not be racist anymore, and especially at the time responding to the Islamophobia that was um, rampant um, in the media and from some of our other um, recent political leaders around around that time. And just so, you know, you have a moment like that where you're standing uh, with all three political parties together calling for unity as the best way forward for our country and you think maybe we're on to something and then... You know, not long after that, we're talking about African gangs in in Victoria, and um, you know, Islamophobia is back back in vogue, and um, people seeking asylum are having you know extra levels of cruelty visited upon them, and yeah, and so I think that's one of the challenges is how quickly a you know, and you get Trump, you know, um, in power, and how quickly a person with a platform can shift the focus and whip up the fear and um, realise that uh, division is a handy tool in um, gaining the support of some voters and, and then you'd feel like you're back to where you started again. Uh, so that, that is a, uh, one of the challenges. Certainly sounds like it. And, and was it 
to any effect was the, was the detriment to that back on Australia on the, what we were talking about before with the political leaders was it a lack of follow through after the after the day like was it was it the day was there they were there together showing the unity and they they said what they said and then after that there was a lack of follow through or was it the fact that it didn't filter down and the community and was quickly quickly forgotten uh, I mean it's always a kind of a convergence of different issues. I mean, one day is never going to help, but the, ne- sorry, never going to be, you know, the solution. But, yeah. um, but you know, having the Prime Minister of the day make that commitment um, is, is valuable. But what happened after that, we saw um, Malcolm Turnbull, Turnbull host an iftar dinner at, um, at the lodge, I believe it was, maybe a parliament house with uh, Muslim leaders and the media response and right-wing response to that was was just wild like and, and yeah. vile and whipping up hatred and and then we saw you know Malcolm said would not remain prime minister for too long and um and other leadership step into that place which uh, changed the narrative again so you know I think I think there's people on in every party who are um, and of every political persuasion who are continually pushing to have greater unity and greater respect for diversity and remove the barriers for full belonging and inclusion and contribution for, for everyone. But when you have uh, those those times where I guess the prevailing media narrative and the prevailing political narrative is fear and division um, and then you uh, add yeah. to that global insecurity you have you know, like this this moment where people are looking for someone to blame yeah. they're afraid anyway because the world's falling apart around them and the people that have a different language and faith and skin color to you are easy targets and, and easy opportunities to blame and so looking back on the 10 years almost 10 years i guess that um that that since the inception of that how do you feel we are progressing i mean do you feel like over the 10 years we've made some progress or you feel like that's just quickly come undone with this current environment we're in with uncertainty and the political um, circus I guess that's going on in some countries I mean often you see I mean the way that you kind of stay um, energized in these kind of roles is that you look you need to and you see the, the areas where you are seeing progress and and you know that at times it's not across the whole nation, and it's not you know that the political winds have have shifted and the race, racism as a whole has disappeared. Um, and you know, in these recent months through the pandemic, the really disappointing um, pieces were where you saw temporary migrants and um, international students and and refugees completely left out of any form of. Support. financial support yeah. um and at the same time actually people seeking asylum getting kicked out of their homes and getting cut off of all of their financial support and you think surely in this time we can have a modicum of concern that we're actually making people homeless and turfing them onto the streets and so that's uh, makes you think have we achieved anything but then at the same time you see um state governments really stepping up to to fill that gap um you see um for for us in particular at welcoming australia you see the mem- you see the public just chipping in huge um donations while, while they're in financial insecurity yeah. themselves and pitching in to help and um and you see the individual um people or families who have been who members of the public have found homes for or paid their rent for or or whatever and you think you know we are uh, making a difference and there is there is hope and um it may, it may not be always coming right from the top but there's um there's there are leaders whether in a at a community level or a state level or a local councils especially have really stepped up and you see those leaders um stepping into that gap and that yeah fills you with hope for a better future so then uh if we go to your 
was your first experience in the family domestic violence was when you did the network with South Australia? Is that the advisory network? What year was that? Yeah, I mean, that was the first kind of formal involvement. I think um, when you're working uh, in, you know, the multicultural area, um, migrants and refugees, people seeking asylum, there, there are a lot of crossover issues with um, yeah. men's violence against women and uh, and financial inclusion and, you know, things like that. So, but in a formal sense, yeah, I was working at um, Anglicare in South Australia as kind of a consultant doing some other things and with Welcoming Australia still. And we saw, I guess, that there was a gap between frontline women's safety services and a communications gap between them and you kind of white ribbons, seroptimist, zonta, um, even, you know, football clubs and businesses and churches and um, other faith groups that were interested in addressing gender equality and, and men's violence against women and were doing, you know, awareness raising activities and, and generating a lot of public support, but not necessarily understanding or knowing what was happening um, in women's safety services and what women themselves were experiencing. And so I just wanted to create a network where that conversation could happen on a, I think it was a, a monthly or bi-monthly basis at the beginning. Um, and, and it really just started as like, let's all be in the room together and hear from each other about what's happening. So that, for example, if um, the women's safety services were having their funding cut or couldn't uh, meet the you know, couldn't provide the services that they were wanting to provide, that all of us well-meaning uh, folk could actually stand with them and, and call for an increase in funding or, yeah. or defend them from cuts or whatever it might be. And, yeah, so we started the Family and Domestic Violence Advocacy Network and uh, some of the people on that network were the same people who ran the White Ribbon uh, Breakfast in Adelaide or were on the White Ribbon State Committee and so out of that whole piece came the annual white ribbon march in adelaide which i ran with a few of the people on that committee yeah so if we go into white ribbon then i mean how did you come to be back in or get involved um as the executive director now so in the last few years um i've had a few good jobs going at once. So I was still still working with Welcoming Australia, though there were um, some other, there's been two other CEOs or um, directors since since May. Um, so, but I was still doing some work there. I was uh, voluntarily running a church that's a very um, LGBTIQ plus pro uh, progressive inclusive little church community, doing that as a volunteer. Um, working on a social housing project in Queensland and working for Essential Media as a, um, a consultant to help progressive organisations with their social change campaigns. And I got to the point where I was like, I'd really like to go back to doing one thing um, properly. How did you have the <laughs> time to do all that? That's, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it, yes, true. So, <laughs> I mean, I've always had uh, my finger in a few pies, but... yeah. Um, but that was that was really spreading myself thin. Um, and so, you know, I guess most of your listeners will know the, the story, but White Ribbon went into receivership at the end of 2019. Um, and then Communicare are the new owners, they're or custodians, they're a community service organisation based in Perth. And they had decided that they wanted a... A man to run White Ribbon in this new chapter and so I guess they went looking for someone that they thought was suitable for that role um, and I saw the job pop up a few times in various ways and thought like nah I don't think I actually don't know if this brand is or the reputation is salvageable I don't know totally whether I even agree with the model um, yeah. and then to cut the story short, um, a few people who I trusted, uh, you know, the Equal Opportunities Commissioner in South Australia at the time and some of her network um, and others encouraged me to have the conversation with Communicare 
Um, and so I was happy to do that and realise that we were on the same page with a lot of the changes that I thought needed to be made if there was to be a new chapter of White Ribbon Australia. I mean, the going to administration, I guess it, it caught a lot of people off guard. I mean, it was something that surprised a lot of us feeling, well, I didn't, I mean, who would have thought that they were ever going to be in trouble? Um, yeah. So, I mean, was there, a, was there, was it hard to um, repair some of um, the perception about it uh, in, in the marketplace or how have you found that? Oh uh, yeah, very hard. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're six, five and a half months in since the relaunch. Um, I mean, overall, the reception has been very positive to the changes that we've made and the change of tone and, and language, but also that the structural changes to our activities. Um, so it has been yeah, very well received, but, um, you know, the people invested a lot in, in the old uh, White Ribbon Australia financially, but um, also emotionally. And... Um, and time and you know there, there was a lot of um a lot of investment in in hoping that white ribbon australia achieved what it existed for and you know when that hope is when hope is um harmed it actually often turns to you know the extreme opposite and so there's a lot of rebuilding of trust to do and um but i but i would say five and a half months in that it has been a lot uh, better than I thought, and and I should also say that the leadership team at the end uh, for the last I think five months of White Ribbon Australia was Delia Donovan, who's now the uh, CEO of Domestic Violence New South Wales, and Liam Dooley in particular. They did a really great job of starting to turn a big ship around, and uh, that's yeah. Everywhere I go, people have. Uh, noted that and wanted me to be aware of that that they were doing a great job and and so you know they'd started to rebuild some bridges that we've been able to walk over but um yeah there's still a lot of people in uh, in australia who the last thing they heard was either bankruptcy or the reproductive rights controversy or dodgy yeah. ambassadors or whatever you know the list goes on and so yes a lot of work to do I mean, it's such a, such an important movement and, I mean, you're right, sir, White Ribbon was synonymous with ending domestic violence and helping that cause and when you see such an important thing in trouble like that, you're like, yeah, you know, what would we do without such a group there to help bring everybody together and campaign for the end of it? Um, and so... It was, yeah, that's actually where most of my conversations went. Like when I told people I was considering this role they always started off with uh, all the things that i just spoke about but universally every conversation was we do need a movement that gathers um men and boys uh, and gathers australians collectively to um, end, end men's violence against women a grassroots mobilizing um movement um and so and, and I should also, I guess, say as part of my um, thought process, you know, I spoke to a lot of people outside the the sector or the movement or how we wanted to find that. And the general public really didn't know that White Ribbon was bankrupt, any of the controversies. Obviously, some some did, but more broadly, they just thought, oh, yeah, White Ribbon, that does good things to end <laughs> violence against women. And so part of my you know, the brand recognition, if you put it in that way, was so high that I thought if we can just invest this with some um, deeper meaning and create um, clearer pathways from awareness to action and outcomes, then this can be a really powerful um, movement in Australia. A critical part, you know, and that's, uh, I mean, we, I guess we're glad that someone's come in and, and helped take the reins. Uh Tell us about the experience with Communicare. Have they been uh, very, uh, very opportunistic, very forward-thinking, um, you know, keen for change? Yeah, I mean, Communicare, um, similar to what you said before, actually, Sam, they just couldn't imagine 
um, Australia without this kind of movement, with without White Ribbon Australia, but in particular without, you know, a, a movement that was going to gather, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to, to create change with one voice. And so, but I think one of the benefits to communicate, so they, they put through their hat in the ring along with, I think, 90 other organisations that were wanting to um, per purchase White Ribbon Australia from the liquidators um, and were successful. And one of the things that I think is really great about this now is um, Communica have a 25-year history in women's safety services and a 10-year history in men's behaviour change programs. And so now that link is actually intrinsically built in to, to who we are. It's not... Um, you know, it's not separated. It doesn't need a family and domestic violence advocacy network to bring it um, together, you know, in that way. It's built in and we, I think that's a really um, great step forward for this movement. And then that's really part of it, been part of my focus in these last five months is rebuilding those other conversations with the women's peak bodies and with um, women's safety sector organisations across the country and um, I think that's a, yeah, so Communicare have been awesome in those aspects yeah. and also in wanting to see the changes like ending the ambassador program and um, shifting to advocacy and grassroots action. Uh, that's been their focus and, they're, um, yeah, they're really happy with that change of direction as well. The Communicare has really been uh, predominantly uh, focused on WA, is that correct? Um, so that's where they're... Yeah, that's right. That's the history behind yeah. them. Uh, so tell us as far as advocacy and grassroots action, which seem to be the the call for what's what the, this phase that we're currently in, um, what the focus is. Tell us, how, how do we plan to do that? What's the plan? Yeah, I mean, really that's come out of... A recognition, I think, that awareness raising only is not enough. Um, that in the past, when family and domestic violence and gender inequality was in the shadows and, you know, not reported about in the media so much and politicians weren't speaking about it, definitely the awareness raising needed to happen. Um, but now I think we're in a situation where everyone... Um, um, there's still always more awareness raising that can be done, but collectively Australians now know that one woman a week is being murdered by their current or former male partner. We know um, that, you know, this intimate terrorism is happening across our country at just a r ridiculous scale of harm. Um, and so for me, again, looking back on my old involvement, I always thought, what happens next? Now that I know, what do I do? And is it come back to the march again next year or, you know, come back to the, the morning tea? Um, but I always, again, I guess related to the Family Domestic Violence Advocacy Network experience, all of these men um, in White Ribbon who had said they're going to stand up, speak out and take action and had taken a pledge, where was the collective voice and the exertion of, I guess, collective power on the structural and systemic aspects of, you know, political um, legislation or policy or funding priorities or where were all of these, all of us speaking out to address um, that aspect? Of course, we can call out our friends in, in the pub and say things on the footy field and, of course, that is really important in changing um the social acceptance of sexism and all of that but there are structural systemic issues that entrench um inequality and create the space for violence and white ribbon australia has access to hundreds of thousands of people whose collective voice can make a difference and so the plan is to use that um firstly and then when we talk about grassroots action um, our model we're calling it community action groups but it's basically um, thinking about community however people do geographic faith-based multicultural sporting communities maybe people with the same occupation or workplace um, coming together to develop 
community-led, culturally appropriate, um, uh, you know, circumstance appropriate, geographically appropriate responses to family violence. I guess the idea is it's not one size fits all. The way to prevent men's violence and abuse is going to be different in a country town than in a city suburb. It's going to be different in for minors than it is for um, office workers. It's going to be different for people in a Muslim community to a Buddhist community to a um, Christian community. And so how can we get community-led, community-owned um, prevention plans happening in communities across the country? And that's our, our grassroots mobilisation strategy. It certainly sounds interesting and uh, sounds like you're going about it the right way. Uh, tell us, with regards to advocacy, do you, do you start with the outcome in mind that you want it to be with the quality and that sort of stuff with, with the systemic changes that you want to see in policy and, and then you go and then start implementing and trying to get the people that need to implement how you want it to be made? Is that, or are you collectively getting the voices of people saying, what's wrong with it? Let's come up with a new plan and then we go and, and then try and implement. Is that is that how it's the process is going to be working? Yeah, I mean, essentially, we're, we're speaking to um, victim survivors, to women's safety services, to uh, women's legal services um, and to other experts, others that have been involved in prevention for a long time as well um, and listening to them about the issues that they're uh, facing and uh, and trying to, I guess, move um, beyond the very important, uh, like we need more funding to do our work, definitely. But what are the, I guess, next level structural things that can um, hopefully prevent more violence from happening as well, um, which is where, where it aligns with us as a, as a prevention organi- primary prevention organisation. Um, but, you know, there's still a million of those issues that you could advocate on. So in these early months where we've been really focused on the criminalisation of coercive control and on the big gaps in men's behaviour change programs, um, both from a, well, like right through the spectrum of that, from prevention through to perpetrator interventions, um, there's, you know, huge waiting lists across the country for men's behaviour change programs. There's uh, a lack of, of programs like that for people um, who don't speak English as their first language. Um, lack of culturally appropriate programs as well. Mm-hmm. And so that those are kind of been our two main focuses, but also things like family and domestic violence leave um, as a paid universal right and even, uh, I guess, joining with um, other organisations to support, uh, you know, the rate of job keeper, not a job seeker, sorry, not being um, cut just because the pandemic is slowing down, but recognising that um, financial insecurity is a driver for women to remain in unsafe relationships and, um, and that having that extra financial security that are that the level the higher level of job keeper and job seeker through this pandemic has meant um, women have been able to leave violent relationships and find safety so things like that that um align with our with the outcomes that as you said um but in the end we want to see a society free of all forms of men's violence and abuse and so we're our voice and um uh, profile and collective power can make a difference uh, on that, we will use it. Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's heading in the right direction. I mean, to start re- the rebrand, the relaunch of this in May this year, I believe it was, which June, which, Late June, June was it? So, I mean, we're sort yeah. of right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the DV incidents. I mean, we we still yet to see the full uh, the full extent of which that's uh, you know of the rates during such a, a lockdown i mean there was there's so much going on how did you how did you do it all and 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 were you being reached out to far quicker with f- far more people for help than previously i mean the the experience of starting in this time has been really interesting because like firstly the rec- recruitment phase happened 
via Zoom. And then the, you know, I started on June the 1st and we launched June 23. So like a very quick time to, yeah. to do that preparation. And that was all via Zoom as well. Um, and now we have staff um, on my team in Brisbane, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, myself uh, and Perth. And up until I think when Queensland first opened to South Australia it was the first time I'd met somebody on my on my team. And so so that aspect of it has created a very um, yeah interesting dynamic in in how we work together and and establish this new because it, it is a culture change project that we're doing like obviously on the meta level, but actually in White Ribbon too, there's old um, assumptions and practices and, and things like that to address. But definitely, um, I think the right, the increase in um, incidents of men's violence against women during this period has both shown the importance of an organisation like this being able to raise the collective voice of people and to bring men and boys into the conversation um, and has also been, you know, heartbreaking and, and devastating to, to, yeah, to, yeah. to, be, to hear, hear those stories constantly. And we do, um, you know, and to meet with a meet with women affected and, and and although white ribbon australia is not a service provider it is you know often where people for the first thing they think of when they think about domestic violence in australia and so they do approach us with looking for support and um asking questions and yeah and it, it is it is heartbreaking and it's um a, a constant reminder of why firstly we need to continue to listen and, and to learn and to not assume we ever have the the answer or that we're the savior or are going to be the ones to fix things that we do this all collectively and collaboratively um but as you know a straight cisgender white man um i need to continually be aware of my my privilege and how I hold the space in this um, in this movement, and to continually become more aware of, you know, the the uh, ways that I need to keep learning and changing and, and growing, and making sure we're inviting more and more men to to to, to self reflect as um, as we see the impact of you know, men spending more time at home equals more violence happening in Australia. What does that mean for for men? And even those of us who would say we are allies, what does it mean for us as we um, are part of male culture? And are we doing our part to make sure that that culture is changing in the right direction? Yeah, oh, that's super important. And the role that you see White Ribbon playing in this. Um, obviously, you've spoken about advocacy, grassroots action, collaboration, I guess, is another big one. Um, as you see the next sort of five years, what are, you, what are you seeing and what are you hoping for? Um, I think we, uh, if I was to be really honest, I think we've talked a pretty big game about what we're, going to do and so the next five years is about turning that into real outcomes um you know our advocacy needs to not just be you know me using a platform to say things <laughs> it needs to actually be the voices of you know tens of thousands of people across the country and making and actually creating those uh, clear pathways for um, people who are a part of the white ribbon movement to actually get involved in advocacy is really important. Um, and we've already had in the, in regards to the community action groups, I think we've had 30 expressions of interest and we're starting interviews now with, um, with those groups. Like uh, there's a, a great one forming in, in Hobart um, led by multicultural communities. There's a, 
fantastic one in Adelaide with the Adelaide Mosque leading it um, and, you know, uh, dozens more are starting to be set up. But those need to um, be proven, I guess, that this is something that can prevent men's violence against women and not be just a, another vehicle for more um, events that are ends in themselves. But, you know, that we've talked about domestic violence for a day and let's plan the next day we talk about it again. But we need to make sure they really do have the, the frameworks and the capacity to develop whole of community responses that lead to um, a reduction in violence. And is it more complicated than getting the right message to the right person uh, to affect change? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we are seeing that what they would do is um, along the lines of a community audit. What's the good things that's already happening? Where are the gaps? Um, what are the resources that we have in this community to address uh, those gaps? What are the opportunities and what resources do we have to meet those opportunities? But but then also it could be um, uh, like they discover in this regional centre there's no emergency housing within a three-hour drive. And so how do we um, do an advocacy campaign to address that issue, which is important in the, the you know, the broader scheme of, of violence prevention, as well as there's the footy club um, in our town that we know is full of challenging male attitudes that are leading to violence. And so what's our plan for, um, you know, getting into that footy club and address it? You know, so it's a multifaceted approach mm. that's not just have we got the message right and um, do we have the right spokesperson, but what are the gaps, what are the opportunities and what do we need to be able to fill those gaps and, um, and take advantage of those opportunities? It's, uh, I mean, it's critical we, we get we get it right and we try and affect change as quick as we can and we know that we can get impatient. But for three years now, I guess I've been, um, you know, here at the Stop Domestic Violence Conference and seeing a lot of frontline uh, workers that come into this space, uh, domestic violence workers that are, that are coming in and, and, um, and a big theme across the last three years has always been about resources funding mm. like um you yeah. know, we just need to get the funding to the grassroots level because that's where the real change and it can really start making some uh some movement forward mm. uh i mean what are your hopes for the, for this as a like the funding and re under resource for the sector do you is there hope coming up do you think uh, and being able to d get the funds to the people that need it most too yeah but i think Natasha Stoppespoir has said it quite well recently that this is a national emergency and needs to be responded to like it is a national emergency. Um, obviously, the challenge with that is it's been a national emergency for decades, so it's not a new emergency. And when we um, have a new emergency like the pandemic, then we can see that, that billions of dollars are unlocked overnight and suddenly there's no um, worry about uh, achieving a surplus or de debt and deficit um, or even what the public think. They, you know, everyone's on board because this is an emergency. And so um, I guess the hope is that our leaders do recognise um, men's violence against women as a national crisis and respond to it accordingly. Um, is there hope for that? Um, you know, sometimes I think the answer is like because we see, uh, say, in Victoria, when they had their Royal Commission into um, domestic violence, the state government did respond, you know, with huge resource and, and change. Obviously didn't fill every gap or address every need, but we did see that that was a trigger for a huge influx of, of funds and, and changes in in policy and procedure. So, I mean, I think there are signs of hope. Um, the uh, Premier's Prevention Council in Queensland is a, another example. Uh, Mark Speakman in New South Wales is, is doing some really great um, things in terms of reform, but we do need to continually keep pushing for the funds. The reality is that as long as um, 
a woman cannot immediately find a safe place to live and financial security to be free from violence, then um, that violence will continue and people will be harmed. And that should, that doesn't do the prevention piece, but that should be the baseline. Every woman who needs safety gets it. And then from there, we start to fund, um, you know, some prevention work and other things that will um, reduce the violence over time. Do you think we need more unity in our response to this? Uh, I mean, each state is doing their own thing, but I mean, do you feel like we need some sort of a, like you said, a national emergency that comes from the top down that says this is how we're going to do it, who's doing this well, let's take those pieces, roll it out. I mean, do you think that's what's still needed? Yeah, and I think, you know, we're part of the national plan and there's about to be the second national plan is about to be developed um and and so i think that is an opportunity for for that unity for everyone to um hopefully be able to contribute to the second national plan and and i guess sit under that umbrella but as you say there are still a great divergence of approaches across each state and i mean one area in that regard to me is the respect for relationships in schools aspect um white ribbon is constantly told by the public um you should be in schools this is how we fix it we need you know men and boys we need boys to grow up into men that understand consent and um, equality and respect and what a healthy relationship looks like um but there is a piecemeal approach to respectful relationships states do it better than others and schools do it better than others if at all and so we need to, uh, and this is just obviously one piece of the puzzle, but we really need to have um, a, a time, we need to get to the place where no matter what school you attend in Australia, you will go through a process of understanding gender equality, consent, respectful relationships, um, sexual violence, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we can know that every student has at least been exposed uh, to that information and, um, and, has been in a culture, a school culture that, um, you know, uh, promotes those aspects as well. And Brad, uh, White Ribbon is still persisting with the school-based programs, the the workplace programs as well. Is that right? They're still got those. Uh, workplace accreditation is is ongoing. We've changed our, um, I guess, the way we're collecting evidence um, from the previous experience. The standard is the same for now, but we are working through a review of that as well as it's seven years old now. But um, primarily we want, we want to make sure that what we're measuring when we're accrediting an organisation is not how many ambassadors, how many morning teas, where's our logo in your foyer, but um, like where's your sexual harassment policy and does it make a difference in real life? Um, do you have family and domestic violence leave? Uh, and do people know that it exists? Is there a culture where people can disclose that they are experiencing violence and be believed? Um, and so we're really, uh, I think this is actually a really important aspect of White Ribbon Australia's work is workplace accreditation, um, where it enables workplaces to go through that authentic audit of their practice, culture, um, policies, and respond to that and so so we believe in that and we're hopefully shifting it to be fully in that direction so it's not a pr exercise it's a um yeah a real audit and change process uh with schools we, there's um great work still happening in new south wales because the new south wales government has funded um, directly to themselves not to us um a position there for Dale Palmer to continue the Breaking the Silence program. But more broadly, we're consulting around the shape of that program and how we um, commit to it in the future because uh, we don't want to compete, we don't want to duplicate, and yeah. we want it to be um, effective. So we're just kind of we've consulted with education departments, with the education unions and um, with, with other teachers, uh, with schools, I guess I should say, to to see what, what our best contribution in that area is. So the answer is yes, we will, but we don't know exactly what the shape of that will be yet. 
Uh, and are there any other exciting things coming out uh, with White Ribbon and, and all the changes that have been going on? Um, anything else that we can expect to see or hear about in the coming months or year? Uh, look, I think five and a half months in, I don't think we have a great list of new exciting initiatives apart from, as I said, making us um, be able to really deliver on, on the things we've mentioned already. We, we really have shifted... You know, we, we've ended the ambassadors program, replaced it with community partners. We've got this community action group model going. We're reshaping the workplace accreditation program. We're reimagining the schools program. Um, we've got an advocacy agenda, and um, we need to get all of that uh, reframing and rethinking, um, not just coming out of you know, my mouth and the mouths of our key, key staff and leaders, but actually, you know, infiltrating the whole of the wire ribbon movement, which is extensive. And so I think that's really our, our work for the next few few months at least. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're going to have your hands full. And I think it sounds like the correct approach to go by, with, which is it's not the number of things that you're doing, but more meaning to the ones that you are doing to yeah. make sure that they're, they're being done right, which is less. We want really to be able to measure outcomes you know to yeah. we want people if people donate to white ribbon which they still do we want them to know this is what you put your money here and this is what it did you know yeah. and to be able to clearly articulate that and i think that um you know that's what we want to at least be able to do over the next months and couple of years well, Brad, I mean, it certainly sounds like you've simplified your life a little bit from the number of things that you're doing, which is great. Uh, but I couldn't think it of someone. Feel all that much simpler, but. <laughs> uh, but mate, such a critical and crucial thing that you guys are doing, and glad to see White Ribbons back up and charging again. And looking forward to hearing more about what's uh, about you guys and what you're up to in the future, and seeing some of those changes come to fruition. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No worries. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.